Live from the Bob Varley Studio in Orlando, Florida, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Watt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I'm joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig. Hello Craig, it is good to see you and I mean really see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. I mean, it, not that you're terrible on a computer, but you know, it's always <laughs> a little bit nicer being in person with someone. Yeah, our, our longtime listeners of Connecting with Walt, you may have noticed that our opening is a little bit different today. I am in Orlando, the home of the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network, and which means Craig and I are in the same room exactly. for this episode. Yeah. Very exciting. And even though this is our second show of 2018, this is our first show Craig and I have recorded since before the holiday season began, uh, because last week's show, as we mentioned, was pre-recorded. Yep. Uh, Craig, did you and Kylie have a Merry Christmas and festive? New Year's celebration. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, we promised that we would talk about Christmas, so <laughs> we have to. Uh, no, I'm. I was very happy with Christmas and uh, New Year's. So with Christmas, I got to spend it up in Pennsylvania, and we had the always elusive White Christmas. Uh, you know, the the Northeast definitely like uh, right around the Great Lakes and up. They got they got smashed pretty hard, and even all the way out to the West Coast in the North, they everyone just got hit bad. And luckily, uh, my parents just live in a in a mountain in Pennsylvania on one of the ski resorts. And uh, even though we weren't supposed to have much, it just it, one of those weird weather coincidences where it, the the snow just started one day and it got socked in and then there was inches and inches and inches and it was a really, really great time. So, but yeah, lots of family, lots of friends, then back to Orlando for the new year and just even, even more of the same. So it was a very busy holiday, but uh, very enjoyable. But what about you and Carol? We had a very nice Christmas. Uh, it's funny. This was the first time in a few years, we didn't come out here for a Diz event. Yeah. So we were able to get all the Christmas decorations, everything up, shopping done without like as being a stress. Yeah. But yet, Carol and I then realized we miss not being at Walt yeah. Disney World for for the Christmas season. We miss not seeing the candlelight processional. We miss not seeing the friends. Exactly. We always see. We've gotten used to seeing around Christmas time. So, so that was you know a mixed bag yeah. kind of thing. But we had a wonderful time. It was you know we went and um, you know. Went and visited, uh, you know, Carol's family. The following day in San Francisco, um, the Broadway musical Disney's Aladdin is performing. Oh, so we got to see that. Excellent. Really well done. Very cool. It was interesting to see how they transitioned it from the film to, you know, the California Adventure yeah. version to a full-blown Broadway 
um, musical version. Yeah. You know, Iago the parrot is replaced by a person. Yeah. But they have a little, uh, a little one-liner uh, about, you know, they, um, Jafar says to the character, um, Iago, why must you always parrot everything I say? <laughs> and I thought, okay, that was cute. Yeah. That's very funny. Uh, Abu is replaced by three, you know, sidekicks. Of yeah. Aladdin. Otherwise, it's the it's the story, and they just yeah. flesh it out a little more. Oh, and very with cool. some new songs. Yeah, and really well done. So if it, it's, I think there's a couple of touring companies out because yeah. in our touring company, it was Adam Jacobs who's who originated the role of Aladdin on Broadway. Oh wow! And I think the other touring company, it's the woman that um, originated Jasmine. Oh. on Broadway is in that one. I'm sure it'll make it to uh, Orlando and. The next five to ten years. Yeah, so. yeah. and we had our, our typical New Year's Eve where you know folks come and visit, yeah. and we play games and things like that. And um, but it's funny you mentioned Pennsylvania because our son married uh, a woman who's um, from near Titusville, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. So they were up there visiting, and of course they got feet and feet and feet of yeah. snow up there. And our granddaughter got a sled or a toboggan or something for Christmas, and so she phoned us and just says, "Grandma, Grandpa, I'm in a pasture, <laughs> and I'm." And anyway, so she was um, running to the top of this hill and sledding down, and we got sent video of it, yeah. and she just had a great time. That's awesome, and all that. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. But yeah. I thought. I think they got four feet of snow. It was a lot, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. It was a I lot. couldn't live. It's, it sounds like nice for one day, yeah, <laughs> but that's it. So I, I don't know how. All you folks, I know a lot of you are having a rough winter right now, and and believe me, I think of you every time, <laughs> and I, I, and I think that I'm glad. I live in California, <laughs> although we did have an earthquake recently, but um, otherwise we're fine. So um, now, last week, Craig and I mysteriously hinted that the new year would bring some changes to connecting with Walt. And if you listen to our Walt Disney World show this week, you've already heard the big news. But in case you haven't, Craig and I are delighted to announce that thanks to the support of you, our listeners, um, Connecting with Walt is going to transition from being an event podcast, as it has been for two years, to becoming a part of the weekly lineup of shows on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network. So, Craig, how, how do you feel yeah, about that? I'm very excited about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's going to give us a chance to uh, really, really up not just the amount that we're doing. I mean, obviously, that's going to happen. Uh, but we're we're going to expand even further on the topics. Uh, you know, we're going to have uh, – a lot of you love this because it is such a – it's basically a storytelling podcast already, but uh, with having more time uh, for episodes, uh, like we saw last week with the Q&A, we're going to have a lot more uh, straight discussion pieces, mm-hmm. too, where where Michael and I really get to hash out our, our feelings on mm-hmm. a lot of the Disney history. So it's just it's going to bring a, a completely different dynamic to this show. And, uh, you know, with that, it's not just going to expand in terms of the amount of episodes uh, we'll be <clears throat> expanding into social media as well, too. And uh, we will have. Hopefully this week, don't have it as of the time that we are recording, but hopefully we will have in the show notes that this is being released, the actual link to uh, at least our Twitter. And then we hope to keep expanding it from there where places where uh, Michael and I can, uh, you know, share 
more history, not just stuff about the show, but stuff regarding the show and uh, have a nice little dedicated feed to all of that so mm-hmm. it's it's all just very exciting it is yeah so yeah so you will we'll still be the same show you you've come to enjoy but we're going to try some new things out as yes. well so new format perfect way of mm-hmm. saying it in 30 seconds instead of my minute oh no <laughs> people love to hear your voice oh i'm sure they don't they do so well in this week's episode craig and i have another installment of our disney legend series with an examination of the life work and legacy of artist Ivan Earl. And Ivan Earl was inducted as a Disney legend in the category of animation in 2015. And Ivan Earl came to the Walt Disney Studio in 1951, and he worked on the background artwork for Peter Pan. He also painted the illustrations for Walt Disney's um, you know, Peter Pan and Wendy in the little Golden Book adaptation of oh. the film. And it's it's amazing how many of the Disney artists did the little golden books as well, yeah. and they saw that as such a treat to be able to do that. Oh yeah, no, I I anytime I go to a store that still sells the Disney golden books, I know they've been releasing them more and more. Mm-hmm. I, I still try to pick them up every now and then. Like for Christmas, I just got the uh, the the Christmas one that they released with Santa Claus. I can't remember. Oh, I the think exact it's like a Christmas. Sto- I want to. I, I bought it too. Yeah, I bought it as well, and I want, I want to say Christmas toy box. Or it was something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah, it was just. But like, I think oh, I have the original though. Still too, I still have some of the originals. Uh, I think my mom got yeah. rid of all of our little golden yeah. books. They started falling apart, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and that's what they were meant to be. They yeah. were meant to for children to read and use and draw on yep. and all that. And that's why a lot of the originals don't exist anymore. Exactly. Um, Ivan continued to develop his style in Disney short films, including For Whom the Bulls Toil, Working for Peanuts, Pigs is Pigs, and Grand Canyon Scope. And he contributed to 1953's Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, which won an Academy Award. Mm -hmm. And as Walt encouraged his artists and animators to become more experienced with their artwork in the Disney shorts, Ivan provided backgrounds and color styling to Jack and Old Mac, The Truth About Mother Goose, and Paul Bunyan. Now, in 1958, Ivan was featured with his colleagues, Walt Paragoy, Mark Davis, and Joshua Meador in the short film, Four Artists Paint One Tree. This aired as part of the Disneyland television episode, An Adventure in Art, which became a staple in art classrooms for decades. And Craig, have you ever seen that? Uh, I want to say that I have, but it's not ringing a bell, right? It. Yeah, I, I definitely think I have. I'd have to look it up yeah. to see what all was featured in that episode, but it feels very, very familiar. I think it was on one of the Blu-ray releases of Sleeping Beauty, and it's on YouTube. Yeah. So you can just look at it there. What was What's funny about it, I heard, uh, was it Floyd Norman said this? Well, there's a scene where Ivan Earl is showing Walt Paragoy how to... Um, draw a bush mm-hmm. for Sleeping Beauty. We're going to get into why Ivan Earl's instructing Walt Paraguay in that in just a bit. But um, later on, apparently, Walt Paraguay later in his life claimed that he was the one that taught Ivan Earl everything he knew. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely have seen this. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, though, for especially, uh, I think it'd be interesting if you're an artist, but even if you're not an artist, just to see how an artist um, 
their process of how they interpret what they see yeah. and then and then translate it into their creation. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now, Disney fans and film critics regard Ivan's work on the 1959 feature film Sleeping Beauty, for which he was responsible for the overall production design, including styling, background, and color, as his most important contribution to the Walt Disney Studio and to the art of animation. To fully appreciate Ivan, er- Ivan Earl's art and legacy, we have to understand Ivan Earl, the man, because his life influences had a direct effect on his art. So Ivan, he was the second son of Ferdinand P. Earl and Charlotte Herman Earl, and he was born on April 26, 1916, in New York City. And Ivan's father, Ferdinand, was an artist, writer, poet, violinist, and athlete. Ivan had a very complicated relationship with his father, and that would be a significant influence in Ivan's life and artwork. Um, Ferdinand was working as a matte painter in the motion picture industry when Ivan was born. And not long after Ivan's birth, the family moved to Hollywood, California, to where the center of the motion picture industry was relocating. Ivan's mother, Charlotte, was a concert pianist. In his adult life, Charlotte would support Ivan's career, and she would remain a constant companion throughout her life. Ivan had an Earl brother, older brother, um, Ferdy, who passed away from polio as a child. And at the time, it was called infantile paralysis. Um, on the day um, after his brother's funeral, um, Ivan displayed symptoms of the disease. And although he survived, it left half his face paralyzed. And that had a great effect on his life. Uh- I bet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ivan taught himself not to smile in an effort to hide the paralysis. And throughout his life, people would misinterpret this and, um, and his shyness as indifference and coldness. Now, due to Ferdinand's, uh, let's just say, philandering ways, uh, Charlotte divorced Ferdinand when Ivan was 10, and she continued to pursue her career as a concert pianist and as a piano instructor. Ferdinand had sole custody of Ivan, and Ferdinand was very strict, and he was a disciplinarian, and he did not allow Ivan to socialize with other children. Um, When Ivan was 10 years old, Ferdinand asked Charlotte if he could take Ivan to Palm Springs, and instead he took Ivan to Mexico and gave him a choice, either read 50 pages of a book or paint a picture every day. And Ivan, already very personally disciplined, um, chose to do both. Hmm. So, which is why he didn't socialize much with children. There you go. (laughs) Um, His early boyhood experiences and personal sense of discipline is very apparent in Ivan Earl's work. Um, His work provides a sense of peace, uh, solitude, and vacancy, and it's very precise and disciplined in its horizontal lines. Um, Ivan developed an affinity for nature, and his art in its elegance and melancholy embraces nature with very few depictions of humans. Um, For the next four years, Ivan traveled with his father through Mexico and France whilst painting continuously and attending private schools. 
Ivan had his first solo gallery showing in France when he was just 14 years old. Wow. Craig, what were you doing when you were 14? <laughs> uh, not, not that. <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't having a first solo um, sh- Showing of your uh, no, art not video, and not France. I think I traveled to Mars, <laughs> Pennsylvania, yeah. but that's about it. Oh, uh, yeah, 14. I don't know. I, I was in school, that's about all I remember being 14. Um, not being not long afterwards, he um, Ivan left his father, and with the assistance of his half brother Harold, who was also living in France, uh, Ivan returned to the United States to live with his mother. Um, during the early years of the Great Depression, Ivan worked for a time as an assistant sketch artist for the United Artists Studio, and he was heavily influenced by the art directors and artists at UA, and he took art classes in freehand drawing and sketching. And Ivan continually sketched with pencils, pens, charcoal, ink, or pastel. And one of his, about 100 of his illustrations from this time were featured in a 1947 book titled In Norway. Hmm. Now, after leaving United Artists, he traveled to Mexico for a year, painting continuously and living on funding provided by a wealthy friend. When he returned to the United States at the age of 21, it's amazing, he's only 21, he's already done all this, Um, Ivan... Ivan embarked on an adventure that would launch his career, a cross-country bicycle trip from Hollywood, California to Monroe, New York, in 45 days. The trip was partially funded by his uncle, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet William Carlos Williams. Um, Ivan funded the rest of his trip by selling a few of the 42 watercolors he created during his ride. He also kept a diary of the trip, which he later expanded to become his book, Horizon Bound on a Bicycle, the autobiography of Ivan Earl. Have you read that? I have, and it, it's still available okay, good. out there. And it's it's very rough. You could tell that this was written in different parts of his life, mm-hmm. just in terms of style, um, spelling. There was no editor oh, for wow. this at all. And he's very frank and matter-of-fact and opinionated yeah. and open. And but it's it's a really fascinating read. Yeah, I'll have to it's, pick that up. Yeah, you'd like it, and it's um, it it looks thick, but it's a, it's a really yeah quick read. Yeah, it was, it's printed in big print. <laughs> I will look it up. Yeah. In 1937, he opened the Charles Morgan Galleries with an exhibition of a selection of his watercolors from his bicycle trip. And this would be the first of many one-man shows in New York. And two years later, at his third consecutive showing at the gallery, the response to his work was so positive that the exhibition sold out and the Metropolitan Museum of Art purchased one of his paintings for their permanent collection. His earliest work was strictly realistic, but after having studied the work of a variety of masters such as um, Van Gogh, Cezanne, Norman Rockwell, Kent, and Georgia O'Keeffe, um, Ivan, he, he developed his own very unique style. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivan intermittently applied for work at the Walt Disney Studio. But in the meantime, to bring in some much-needed cash, he began a business of creating linoleum print Christmas cards in 1939 with the assistance of his mother. And the card designs were based on his landscape paintings. Um, Opera singer and family friend Lawrence Tibbet ordered 1,000 custom cards, 
But in his inexperience, Ivan charged so little that he failed to cover the cost of production. Um, That's not good. These his his Christmas drawings are beautiful, and they're like of um, Yosemite and Big Mm. Sur, and but they're all very stylized. Yeah, things covered in snow and just just breathtaking. Yeah. Um, not knowing the going rate for this type of work, Ivan also undercharged for designs he sold to Chrysan's greeting card company. And Ivan eventually formed his own Christmas card company with a family friend, and he continued to design cards during his wartime service in the United States Navy. And Ivan was drafted in 1943 to service in the U.S. Navy during World War II. He was stationed at the Jacksonville Navy Naval Air Station in Florida, and he was ordered to paint a large mural about life in the Navy. He also made some money on the side by painting oil portraits of enlisted men for $5 apiece and of officers for $20 apiece, because they must have been paid more. Um, Rather than going into town on liberty, Ivan passed the time drawing cartoons of daily Navy life and painting portraits. He painted over 200 portraits during his time in the Navy. I wonder how many of those exist. If people would realize what they had. Yeah, I can't imagine many. Yeah. Ivan married his first wife, Alice, who was a a member of the U.S. Naval Reserve's WAVES. That's Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. Mm -hmm. And after his discharge in 1945, Ivan and Alice settled in New York City. Their daughter, Kristen, was born in August 1946, and they moved to the West Coast in 1948. Ivan and his family was living on the GI Bill, and Ivan was still in the Christmas card business. In 1947, he contracted with American Artists Group, who eventually published more than 60 of his designs from 1948 through 1976 through the Irene Dash Greeting Card Company. So, and Ivan later distributed catalogs of of these cards through three thousand outlets under Earl Christmas Prince Yuletide Greetings. More than eight hundred of Ivan Earl's designs sold more than three hundred million copies from nineteen thirty eight through nineteen ninety five. Although many of his early Christmas cards designs were lost, Ivan and his second wife, Joan, would publish a beautiful and large book of Ivan's Christmas art in 1996 titled The Complete Christmas Card Art of Ivan Earl. This is a beautiful book. and It's huge. If you're looking to buy it, uh, you can easily pick it up on Amazon right now. There's a couple new copies still left. A uh, couple, couple of used copies, uh, as long as you can afford the price tag starting at three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's normally four hundred. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, they had the they had a, a few copies at the yeah. Walt Disney Family Museum. Oh, that's <laughs> uh, and you picked one up? No, no, no I did not. But not they're beautifully tooled <laughs> and um, designed. Yeah. And, it's lovely. It's a, it's a massive book. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. After moving to California, Ivan trained and worked as an architectural draftsman and sold watercolor paintings on the side for extra money. Uh, many of the paintings he created in the 1940s were sold for commercial use on magazine covers and print advertisements. And using his royalties from his Christmas card designs, he... Um, he ended his draftsman's career, and he enrolled in life drawing and um, painting classes at Art Center School. 
Then in October 1950, Ivan Earl received a phone call from the Walt Disney Studios. Ivan was hired as a background painter, bringing to an end all his years of financial struggles. Walt Disney became intrigued by Ivan's work in 1953 when he created the design of Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. And this is a 3D animated short that won an Academy Award and a Cannes Film Festival Award. So Walt kept the artist busy for the better part of a decade, painting the settings for Peter Pan, for whom the bulls toil, working for Peanuts, Pigs as Pigs, Paul Bunyan, and Lady and the Tramp. Now, one day, an offhand comment by background artist Al Dempster led Ivan to believe that he would be assigned to work on the studio's next animated feature film, Sleeping Beauty. And in his usual personally disciplined habits, Ivan began painting backgrounds at home each night after working a full day at the studio. Now, Ivan envisioned stylized, simplified Gothic motifs for the film with straight, tall, perpendicular lines like Gothic cathedrals. Um, He practiced in the Gothic style of artists like Albrecht Dürer, um, Jane van Eyck, um, and Peter Bruegel the Elder. Um, And Ivan's practice and discipline paid off. Uh, Walt Disney assigned Ivan as the lead artist responsible for styling backgrounds and colors on the film. Sleeping Beauty was to be Walt's Sistine Chapel. Other film studios are producing large epic films to attract people from their televisions into the cinemas. And Walt wanted Sleeping Beauty to be an epic film. And it is. And anyone who watches Sleeping Beauty in a cropped format that, you know, fitting their their brand new widescreen TVs or, God forbid, going all the way back to four by three square Mm -hmm. televisions and watching it, you just you're not seeing how movies at the time were supposed to be grand, wide, expansive Mm -hmm. and uh, Sleeping Beauty and, and even Lady and the Tramp. Uh, at that time, really tried to capture that that exact same feeling as the movies were. Yeah, I remember how excited I was when years ago, before we had Blu-ray and all that, and they released at the El Capitan Theater yeah. in Hollywood. They released Sleeping Beauty on the seventy millimeter. Yeah. Film and I, I had always told Carol, if Sleeping Beauty is ever released in seventeen millimeter, we're going to see it. And sure enough, they did it. Oh my! And we made a special trip to see it at the El Capitan. That would be it amazing, was magnificent. Yeah. That I can only imagine. So I love seeing movies in seventy millimeter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Now, Walt had become frustrated that Mary Blair's design work for films like Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan was lost once his animators began applying their own styles to the films. So Walt told his animators that Ivan Earl had carte blanche with the design of the film. They were to take direction from him. This would create an atmosphere of animosity and tension uh, during the production between Ivan and some of the animators, especially from some of Walt's nine old men who were the preeminent artists at the studio and were very competitive. They began to push back against Ivan's style. Um, The animators were more comfortable with squash and stretch and rounded characters, whilst Ivan's style was angular and vertical. 
Um, Walt gave Ivan a private room where Ivan studied various art styles and created hundreds of 6 by 12 inch or 15 centimeter by 30 centimeter film sequence sketches and painted full-scale backgrounds for the film. Um, He would sometimes spend a whole week on just one painting. Mm. Walt had never given one artist so much creative influence on a film. So as word about Ivan's room and his artwork spread throughout the studio, his fellow artists would stop by to take a look at what he was working on. Uh, Some of the animators felt Ivan had been given too much power, whilst others embraced his work. Uh, Mark Davis appreciated Ivan's work and worked to mimic Ivan's horizontal and vertical lines in Briar Rose's character design and in the shapes and lines of the three fairies yeah Yeah, especially look when you're looking at the scenes of sleeping beauty look at like the folds of her dress exactly and and how they mimic the ivan earl's um vertical and horizontal background yeah the production of the film took nine years and it was very laborious. At one point, Ivan supervised 10 background painters, and he led tutorials on his painting style, and he created tutorial panels so the artists and painters could emulate Ivan's medieval look for the film. Ivan sometimes worked on 30 paintings at one time, as he taught other artists to paint like himself. It takes eight drawings to create one second of animation for a film, and some of the animators are drawing one one sketch per day because they were so meticulous. So, On his design style choice for the film, Ivan said, I wanted stylized, simplified Gothic, straight, tall, perpendicular lines like Gothic cathedrals. I used one-point perspective. I rearranged the bushes and trees in geometrical patterns. I made a medieval tapestry out of the surface wherever possible. All my foregrounds were tapestry designs of decorative weeds and flowers and grasses. And since it is obvious that the Gothic style and detail involved from the Arabic influence acquired during the Crusades, I found it perfectly permissible to use all the wonderful patterns and details found in Persian miniatures. And since Persian miniatures had a lot in common with Chinese and Japanese art, I felt it was okay for me to inject quite a bit of Japanese art, especially in the close-up of leaves and overhanging branches. Who would have thought that that Sleeping Beauty was so complex? I mean, it is, though. (laughs) You watch it, you can pick up on it right away. Mm -hmm. It's it's not your average average Disney movie, especially like once you started getting in the Xerox era. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, Now, now during a presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum on December 16th, 2017, Disney artist Bernie Mattinson, who had worked at the Walt Disney Studios since 1953, and Floyd Norman, who began working at the studio in 1956, talked about their work and the studio when Sleeping Beauty was in production. Now, Floyd had worked as an in-betweener with Stan Green, who was an assistant to Mark Davis, and Floyd worked on cleaning up Prince Philip and the Three Fairies. Flora, Fauna, and Merriweather. Bernie created all the model sheets, including the lettering for Sleeping Beauty, and he worked as an assistant animator on the film. And Bernie recalled that the production on Sleeping Beauty began in 1951, and Walt wanted the film to be a moving tapestry. Um, one of the models used for the look Walt wanted were the unicorn tapestries that are on exhibit in New York's The Cloisters. Mm-hmm. 
Now, when Floyd visited room 2B where Ivan was working, he brought a camera and took photos of Ivan's work. And Floyd saw it as recording history, despite cameras not being allowed on the studio. Um, Bernie said that you could get fired for having a camera at the studio. He was always breaking the rules anyways. (laughs) He was. Um, Now, Bernie recalled that Ivan was very generous in talking about his work in his reference books, but he never smiled. Floyd remembered Ivan was very shy and not outgoing, but he could be very gregarious when engaged. Floyd said many of the artists were in awe of Ivan and found his work inspiring. If an artist needed inspiration to lift his spirits, um, they would go to room 2B to look at Ivan's art. Now, Bernie talked about the first scene completed for the film, and it was scene 31, where Briar Rose walks in the woods singing, I Wonder. This scene was done first to test how Briar Rose would pass in front of Ivan's horizontals and verticals to make sure it didn't jitter. And this scene is made up of 688 drawings, and it's 30 feet long of sequences. Now, Walt looked at the scene and said it was dull. Guys, we've got to give this life. Now, you might be wondering how Walt could have found this beautiful sequence dull. Well, at first, the sequence just showed Briar Rose walking, singing, and eating berries. Walt knew what it needed, and Bernie added all the animals and birds. Um, He had to redo the sequence four times before Walt gave it his okay. Um, After Walt approved the sequence, Mark Davis gave Bernie a celebratory cake. A well-deserved one. (laughs) Um, Now, when Milt Call was told by Walt Disney that his Prince Philip didn't move well and looked like he was floating, Milt got so mad, he picked up all his photostats and threw them out. Some of this emotion was also due to Milt being frustrated with Walt because Walt had become so distracted with the construction of Disneyland that Walt didn't have time to approve the dailies Mm -hmm. and nothing could move forward without Walt's approval. So when drawing Maleficent, Mark Davis wanted her undergarment to be red. Ivan wanted it to be purple, so it had continuity with the rest of the film. Mark thought red was more sinister. Ivan won. But the battle over the pink and blue dress between the fairies is a parody of this argument between Mark and Ivan. That is hilarious. Isn't that cool? That is so fun. That they work that in there? That is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Sleeping Beauty is a film with detail upon detail. Um, Ivan's use of black was dynamic. Almost every character has a little bit of black. And this was used most powerfully with Maleficent in her fairy form and as a dragon. Now, you'll notice that Briar Rose's color is neutral. Um, she is part of the environment with just a little black. And this reflects what Ivan desired for himself, to be an organic part of the environment. Now, the prince wears red until he meets Briar Rose in the forest. Then his color palette is neutral colors after Briar Rose's forest friends steal his red cloak and hat. Walt Disney asked Ivan to design diorama scenes for the interior of Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And this was two years before the film was to be released. So Ken Anderson completed the dioramas based on Ivan's work. 
and a walkthrough was officially dedicated on Sunday, April 29, 1957. A Walt Disney and actress Shirley Temple presided over the ceremony. Guests would use a bee ticket, which cost 20 cents, to walk through the castle. And they would also receive a program of the film. Hmm. And images of these dioramas were included in the original DVD issue of Sleeping Beauty. So... Sleeping Beauty would end up being the most expensive film in uh, the studio had made up to that time. It ended an era at the Walt Disney Studio. Never since has the studio lavished the time and work on a film. So, Craig, in, in since you're our you're our um, our film, you know, certain well critic, but a historian. It, Sleeping Beauty, what are your thoughts of its significance and impressions of it? I'd argue that it is easily the most significant Disney movie since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the time. Uh, It was... If it would have worked out, and I mean, obviously there were big ones along the way. Fantasia kind of took things in a different direction. Uh, But if Sleeping Beauty would have worked, it would have said that would have been the precedent for Disney animation at that point in time. Uh, animation could completely look different to this day mm-hmm. if, it, if it wasn't for that, that failure. I mean, it's because then, you know, Disney animation always went through its ups and downs. And we've talked about it before. It's easy to know, you know, there was it, Walt tried with Pinocchio and that wasn't a great success. Uh, Fantasia was limited success, but then go cheap, something like Dumbo, and a lot easier to get returns. And that's sometimes there was just that fluctuation with uh, with the studios. And um, unfortunately, they didn't really get I mean, you know, like stuff like Jungle Book afterwards, still very, very grand. And there's a lot of beauty to it. But uh, once Walt passed away. They never really got a chance to make another opus of a mm-hmm. film, in my opinion, and which is a shame. But uh, I feel like some of the modern day animation we get, even though a lot of it is computer animated, uh, especially with Pixar, uh, like thinking back to a couple of years ago, people don't like it that much. But The Good Dinosaur, like that should be praised for for this generation right now for the backgrounds designed for that film uh i I feel like people are still trying to get that same beauty and style that that disney was going to achieve in in that time period but uh it's it it is a shame that it wasn't a bigger success than than what it was because it it could have changed everything so much Yeah, audience really didn't discover that film yeah. until years later. And we'll do a more in-depth analysis and yeah. review of Sleeping Beauty in our yeah. film series <laughs> quite a while from now. But, um, yeah, it was – I think some of the reviews at the time, critics thought, well, it's another it's another, you know, princess story. And, um, you know, it was sort of a retelling of the same material. And Disney wouldn't do another princess film really until The Little Mermaid. And it's not, it's not a perfect movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, artistically speaking, I think it's as close to perfect as you can get, Mm -hmm. but, uh, story and the stuff that it does get criticized for, I, there are times where I would agree with it. It's not, it's not one of my favorites, 
because I feel like it is lacking in the storyline and how it plays out. But oh, art style, it is just a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I agree. So. Now, Ivan left the Walt Disney Studio before Sleeping Beauty was released to join John Sutherland Productions as their art director. And looking back at his time at the Walt Disney Studios, Ivan said, I consider my six or seven years at Disney the greatest art school in the whole world because I worked hard and fast with the very, very best men in the industry. Now, at the John Sutherland Productions, Ivan hired his former assistant on Sleeping Beauty, Frank Armitage, and Disney artist Victor um, Habush. They created industrial films until 1961, when the studio ceased operations. Um, Ivan then created his own motion picture animation company, Ivan Earl Productions Incorporated. Now, you may have seen Ivan's work from this era without realizing it. He created the two-minute trailer for the film West Side Story, the title sequence for the television series Craft Suspense Theater, and the trademark logo for Universal Pictures. Hmm. He continued to illustrate books, design magazine and final album covers, create television commercials and print advertisements for the largest companies at the time, including Chrysler, Chevrolet, Motorola, Ham's Beer, Stouffer's Restaurants, and Kellogg's Cereal. Wow. Yeah, a very popular television show in the early 1960s was the Tennessee Ernie Ford Show. And Tennessee Ernie Ford was a very popular singer and humorist at the time. Fans of the television show I Love Lucy will remember his appearances as Cousin Ernie. Um, Ivan created one of the most popular Christmas specials for the Tennessee Ernie Ford Show in 1963, titled The Story of Christmas. This 18-minute special proved to be very popular and was rerun for several years. And um, clips of it are um, available on YouTube. Okay. A Daily Variety reviewer said Ivan's Christmas sequence should be preserved and played back for years on end, and the show was digitally, digitally remastered in 1997. Now, Ivan found film work and animation to be very satisfying. He said, Filmmaking is the greatest art form because it unites literature, music, and visual art into one harmonious whole, and it reaches and moves more people than any other medium. So after the success of the story of Christmas, Ivan began work on an even more ambitious project, an animated telling of the Easter story. And Ivan intended for this production to be a visual tone ballet in which the mood of the film was more important than realism. And said Ivan, to me, the Easter special was going to be my big chance to show the world what I could do. I had finally almost perfected my camera technique. Here was my chance to do my variation of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. It would be my very own creation to be viewed by millions and millions of people, and I would make it so beautiful and so extraordinary that it would launch me into my new career of creating television specials, one after the other. Ivan created thousands of paintings, and he personally photographed them. He used a multiplane camera with four separately lit levels to create different effects and moods. He used a bipack process in which two reels of film 
are fed into the camera and move the figures of the characters on a black and white traveling mat whilst shooting the backgrounds at four different speeds with four different ex- separate exposures. So this was very different from standard animation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was able to get effects um, much more quickly than he could if he had done yeah. all this through standard animation. Yeah, true. So Ivan spent a year completing the 30-minute Easter special titled, Were You There? The network broadcast of the show was scheduled, then canceled at the last minute because network executives were concerned that a television show depicting the crucifixion of Jesus could be interpreted as anti-Semitic. Um, the show did air once in 1969 on KTLA Channel 5 in Los Angeles. Have you seen it? I have not. No. I, I Unfortunately, I've seen at the Walt Disney Family Museum in Ivan Earl exhibit, they actually had some of the figures mm-hmm. on display. And they were all varying sizes because of – in order to give that 3D yeah. know, depth of yeah. effect. And they had a couple of sequences playing from it. Oh. But I've never seen the complete version. One day, maybe. One yeah, day. hopefully it'll be made available yeah. if it's still out there. Now, of that experience, Ivan stated, that was the beginning of the end of my motion picture career. And it was. Ivan never produced another film. In 1970, Ivan's wife, Alice, passed away of lung cancer due to her chain smoking. Ivan thought his world had ended and lost himself in his artwork. In 1972, he married Joan Kennedy, who had once been a piano student of his mother, Charlotte. Good bounce back. (laughs) Yeah. So, after about 15 years creating animated art, Ivan returned to painting full-time and worked steadily for the remainder of his life. He worked primarily in acrylic, but the pigment was less vibrant in color than traditional oil paint, so he switched to oil paint in 1971. Ivan's passion was in nature, and his perception of landscape was original. The scenes he created reflected his inherent discipline, warmth, passion, and spirituality. He painted mostly from memory and his imagination, which is why he could paint anywhere. Yeah. Um, Ivan talked about how nature inspired his artwork. Beauty is the thing we are all searching for. In nature, when I look, I see a tree. Some of them are such that they thrill me with their perfection and their sweeping lines and certain mood they seem to have. In every tree, I feel as though I could see the soul of that tree. It is alive. It is a person. But when I paint, I forget the things I know. I just sit there painting away, trying to get the feeling into my painting that I feel inside. Whatever beauty is, I feel it. And as long as I can, I shall try to find more and more beauty and to put it down so others can see what I have seen. In addition to his watercolors, oil sculptures, drawings, and scratchboards, in 1974, he began making limited edition serigraphs from his paintings along with original compositions in this medium. This process is commonly referred to as silkscreen printing, Mm -hmm. which is a very labor-intensive process of layering colors to recreate an original painting or to create a new image. 1991, Ivan became the first artist to apply a UV coating to serigraphs, which eliminates dust and protects the artwork from scratches. In 
1996, Ivan wrote, For 70 years I've painted paintings and I'm constantly and everlastingly overwhelmed at the stupendous infinity of nature. Whenever I turn and look, there I see creation. Art is creating. Art is the search for truth. Towards the end of his career, Ivan's work received a new round of recognition. He was praised by several publications, including Time Magazine, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and the Art News. In 1998, Ivan was honored at the 26th Annie Awards and the Windsor McKay Award for Lifetime Achievement in the Field. In 2015, he was inducted as a Disney legend. His daughter, Kristen Thompson, accepted on her father's behalf. Craig, you and I were there. I was not there for that one. No, but uh, you can, and I'll have it in the show notes to this, but uh, we do have the video of Mm -hmm. Ivan Earl's tribute and uh, acceptance speech at that at that D23 Expo, so I will make sure to include that. Excellent. But, yeah, I watched them all through there, but <laughs> I believe I was waiting in line for the animation panel, which happened right after. Oh, okay. And then you joined me there, right, and we I watched did. that. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ivan Earl passed away on July 20th, 2000, at the age of 84. However, his work continues to be shown in museums and art galleries, and he continues to be an influence in art, and animation fields, and at the Walt Disney Company. The Walt Disney Family Museum on August 19, 2017, Imagineers Tony Baxter and Tom Morris talked about the influence Ivan Earl's work had on the design of Euro Disneyland, now Disneyland Paris. When the time came to design the park's castle, Tony looked at Herb Ryman's sketches. There was pressure to construct a castle similar to the Magic Kingdoms at Walt Disney World and at Tokyo Disneyland. Those construction plans were updated for the new park. But Tom Morris wanted a more charming park or charming castle. To support his position that this castle needed to be vastly different from the other Disney Park castles, he took photos of all the castles within a few hours' drive of Euro Disneyland, all of which had similarities to the Magic Kingdom and Tokyo Disneyland castles. Dick Nunes insisted the Euro Disneyland castle be a stretched version of the Magic Kingdom's castle, and Tony Baxter said he was horrified. So, Herb Ryman's concept for the castle was Sleeping Beauty Castle with a rose window perched on a hill. Joe Rohde wanted a winter-summer castle. Tom Delaney designed a futuristic castle to be a castle of discovery. This came close to being approved, with the location of Fantasyland being switched with Discoveryland. Although Tom Morris admired all this work, he felt it was not on point. Both Tom and Tony agreed the castle had to be on a hill. They still had to decide whose castle it would be and how it would look. Tom was inspired by Mont-Saint-Michel, and he researched storybook castles and put together a display board of Disney storybook castles. All of them were on a hill. They began to focus on Sleeping Beauty because of its French origin, and then turned to Ivan Earle's work for inspiration. Every sketch Ivan Earl did of the castle in the film was different. There had been a rule that every Disney castle must be vertically shaped like a Christmas tree. So Ivan's concept art for the film's castle was lyrical, slender, and beautiful. 
So with Ivan's work as inspiration, Tom Morris went back to a silhouette he had created of Mont Saint-Michel, stretched it, and gave it definition. And he kept Herb Ryman's rose window. As they built the model, the only guides they had was a VHS tape of the film, photos of the backgrounds from the film, and the book Art of Animation. You think they would have had more resources, wouldn't you? But I guess not. That's pretty good. (laughs) Then they had the issue of the unique Ivan Earl trees. They couldn't use topiary trees. They planted trees and shaped them as they appeared on Ivan's artwork. However, they underestimated the fertility of the French soil. The trees grew quickly and became out of scale with the castle. After a storm in 2000 damaged several of the trees, they were removed and gave the castle setting more of an Ivan Earl look. Um, the trees have to be thinned every 10 to 15 years to keep them in scale. Ivan's influence isn't limited to Disneyland Paris. Disney artist and art director Mike Giamo spoke about the influence Ivan Earl has had on his career during an appearance at the Walt Disney Family Museum on November 4th, 2017. Mike said he was fascinated with colors and shapes when he was a boy. And at five years of age, he saw Sleeping Beauty and he remembered the visuals of Sleeping Beauty and how the colors and shapes looked in his memory. These memories carried through his career. In 1992, Mike was asked to work on the Disney film Pocahontas, and Ivan's aesthetics of horizontals, verticals, and saturation of color heavily influenced his design of the film. So Ivan's art design was to create a fantasy world to counterpoint the realistic story uh, through the use of horizontals and verticals, and he created a lyrical, colorful world. Um, Ivan would also combine warm and cool colors. So Mike created Pocahontas as a warm character with her skin color against a cool forest with a vertical quality. So, and I didn't realize that until they showed clips of yeah. Pocahontas, and you can see. Oh, it's very, very evident. Yeah. So, it, it stands out. So, sometimes I don't like that style of animation where where the characters really do pop out because of this. But it, you, just, you do have to remember, though, that it's, it's done for specific reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, this is a case where it is. it wasn't just an accident or it wasn't. It wasn't artists just being kind of sloppy and not really paying attention. This uh, one of the parts that makes Pocahontas actually watchable. <laughs> yeah, especially the backgrounds. Yeah. Now, Ratcliffe was an intruder in the forest, so his palette was bright and unnatural-looking colors. Um, the Just Around the River Bend sequence demonstrates the Ivan Earl style of verticals, um, fantasy luminescence of nature whilst working with the natural colors of Native American dress. Now, when Mike was assigned as the art director of Frozen, the original concept of the film, then titled The Snow Queen, in which the Snow Queen was a villain and a matchmaker in the village of Mistletoe matches Anna and Kristoff, just didn't speak Ivan Earl to Mike. After John Lasseter said, if you want this story to resonate, you have to dig deeper, three new story pitches for the film were submitted. The one with the grandest scale was accepted. And Mike wanted, went back to Ivan Earl's work and studied images of Scandinavia and saved about 85% of them. And then he realized most of the images he saved were from Norway. 
So he made the pitch that the film setting be in Norway. And Mike went on a research trip to Norway and discovered the, the verticality of the country. Um, the 11th century stave churches with their roof lines inspired the castle in Frozen with the verticals pulled as far as possible. He set the castle at the foot of the fjord to depict the environment is embracing the castle. Um, everything in the film is pulled vertically in height, including lampposts, castles, rooms, um, and characters with detail upon detail. Um, the folds in Elsa's cape are vertical, like the folds in Sleeping Beauty's Dress, drawn by Mark Davis. The film's costumes have a color palette that is bright and luminous. And all of these concepts were continued in a 2017 animated short, Olaf's Frozen Adventure. Now, Mike is part of the Frozen Legacy team, which means he consults on anything related to Frozen, including video games, um, attractions, art, and the Frozen expansion coming to Hong Kong Disneyland. So we're going to see a lot more of Ivan Earl's influence in the years to come. That's excellent. Yeah. So, so did you, when you watched Frozen, did you see that Ivan Earl influence? Uh, slightly not as much, though. Uh, I think that has a lot to do with um the style of the animation in frozen it just uh there's so much depth in a lot of the in a lot of the disney uh in a lot of the disney animated movies right now uh thanks to the computer uh computer designing that they're doing with it but for me i Disney still suffers in terms of background design and how it blends with their characters uh with basically with the exception of Zootopia, which I thought did a fantastic job at that. Um, but I feel like Pixar kind of more embraces the the importance of background and, and how that tells the story mm-hmm. than, uh, than, than Disney animation does currently. But I think, I think they're getting there. Uh, there's been, you know, with each movie that comes out, I think they take a a step forward in the right direction on it. But uh, it's, you know, I don't want them to come out the gate being masters. I want them to learn. Exactly. Exactly. So we can see the development. Today. Exactly. So now, uh, Ivan Earl's influence isn't limited to the Walt Disney studio. The banner saga, a video game by developer stoic draws heavily from Ivan's style and contains a character named after him. And Ivan Earl is credited for artistic inspiration. The graphic style of Sony's first computer animated film, Open Season, is heavily influenced by the style of Ivan Earl. And after looking through the book of Ivan Earl's Christmas card designs, directors Jill Colton and Andrew Stacci brought the book uh, to the artists in Sony's visual art department to use in the creation of the backgrounds and character design for the film. Need to go back and watch that then. Yeah, I've I've only seen um, stills from it, and you yeah. can definitely see the influence yeah. in the backgrounds and all that. So, so that and that so that sort of brings us to yeah. the the life and legacy of of Ivan Earl. How it continues on. Yeah, he's he was a very important person. Uh, obviously, why he was very well deserved of his his Disney legend status, and I honestly his impact in the artistic world. I don't. I don't think there's ever going to be a time uh, where anything in Disney, Pixar animation, anything in that realm where uh, people aren't still looking back to 
to kind of the standards he set mm-hmm. and looking towards his style. So uh, I I truly believe that Ivan Durrell is going to be a constant and always with Disney animation, and he won't be forgotten anytime soon. The same way with uh, other legends like Mark Davis mm-hmm. and yeah. Tyrus Wong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Well, several books, articles, presentations, and websites were used as references for this episode, including the official Ivan Earl website, which is um, IvanEarl.com, the film Ivan Earl, My Life, which is really fascinating, and that's available on YouTube. Uh, Awaking Beauty, The Art of Ivan Earl. Um, the Walt, uh, this was at the Walt Disney Family Museum. It's curated by Michael Labrie and Ian Szasz. And it was a wonderful exhibition, but the book um, for the exhibit is available. Oh. And that is also very, very well done. And then, of course, the Walt Disney Family Museum was very, very helpful and not only the talks that I referred to in this in this present in this episode that they referred that they you know that I mentioned, but also um, they they provided a lot of background information um, for me. They provided me even with um, images of some of Ivan Earl's art yeah. and all that that I could take a look at. So um, again, Walt Disney Fan Museum is just a wonderful place. Yes. Um, to connect with Walt. And if you would like to learn more about Ivan Earl and the recent exhibition on his work at the Walt Disney Family Museum, you might want to go back into our Disneyland shows archives, listen to my interview with the director of collections at the Walt Disney Family Museum, Michael Labrie. And we will also have a link to that in our show notes. And yes. at some point, um, we will bring that over into the Connecting with Walt. Yeah, so we don't have an exact date for that yet, but uh, you will see it pop up, and we encourage you to download and listen to it. And I'd like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol Bowling, for her assistance in locating the additional material that I required for this episode. Right, well, it's time once again for This Week in Disney History. And this is featuring important events at the Walt Disney Studio, Disney theme parks, and in Disney in general. You might remember from last week's show, I just ran through a whole litany of events and got to thinking, you know, I think we could make this a lot more fun. So basically, I'm stealing this from a, a, a different podcast that Carol enjoys listening to, this concept, a uh, a, a reality show podcast. And we're going to do a This Day in Disney History sort of quiz. And so I have here as my uh, our special guests, we have Craig, of course. I'm still here. He's still here. And we have from Diz Pop and our Diz Universal show and a whole plethora of other shows. We, of course, have Rhino oh, here with Thank us. you for having me. You're welcome, because I know you know a lot about Disney history, and I think this will be fun. So this is very simple. And of course, you, our listeners, you can play our home version and, and go along with this, but no fair Googling if you're <laughs> playing at home to figure this out. So the rules for this are very simple. For you will get three points if after hearing the questions, you don't wish to hear the multiple choice options Mm. because you are so sure of the answer, you can just blurt it out. 
Um, if you do want to hear the multiple choice options, you can get um, you can get two points for it. If you want me to take away one incorrect answer, you will um, you will get one point. Okay. okay. So you got that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, Rhino, since you are our guest, I will let you go first here. So we're going to start out with January 8th. Okay. This Disneyland opening day restaurant closed its doors in Frontierland on January 8th, 1962. It is remembered for its tasty fried chicken dinners. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to need the multiple choice, I think. All right. Is it A... Aunt Jemima's Pancake House, B, Don DeFore's Silver Banjo Barbecue, C, Chicken Plantation Restaurant, or D, Miss Lily's Chicken Dinner Restaurant? I feel like it's the Aunt Jemima's Pancake House, but I don't... Oh, God, now I'm nervous. That's what I'm going to say. Okay, that's your final answer. A, Aunt Jemima's Pancake House? Yes. All right. The answer is actually C. It's the Chicken Plantation Restaurant. It was. I feel like it was too obvious, and I was going to guess the <laughs> wrong one. Oh. Yeah. It was in business since the park's opening day, and it closed in Frontierland on this day in 1962. It was sponsored by Swift's Premium Meats, and this served up fried chicken dinners right along the rivers of America. Mm. It was closed so that the... The Haunted Mansion could be built oh. over there in New Orleans Square. However, you can see a facsimile of the Chicken Plantation Restaurant as you cruise by the Blue Bayou Restaurant in, in, your, um, in your boat. You will see the diners sitting in front of the facade of a plantation house that is based on the Chicken Plantation House. Uh, was there ever an Aunt Jemima Pancake House? Yes, yeah. there was. Okay, That's I the, wanted to make sure that... It was the Liberty I, Bell, wasn't it? It was the Riverbell Terrace. Riverbell okay, Terrace, yes. I just wanted to make and, sure that I didn't make that up. And Aunt Jemima was actually there. Oh, Aunt okay. Jemima was there, she, and she was a good friend of Walt's. Yeah. So he liked to have breakfast over there. Okay. So, Craig, January 9th. This fondly remembered Future World Pavilion at Walt Disney World's Epcot Center closed permanently in 1999. Oh, um, that's I don't need any multiple choice. Horizons. You are absolutely uh. right. Horizons closed forever at Walt Disney World's Epcot. It was open since October 1983. And, of course, this took guests on a fascinating 15-minute ride through the 21st century. So it would uh, be torn down and replaced sooner or later with Mission Space. I just want to point out, I would not have gotten the last question. So. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> so it's not like I'm just getting tossed the easy ones here. But So right now, our score is Craig 3 and Ryan 0. Well, he's pretty good at beating okay. me at a lot of things. So. <laughs> okay. All right. So January 10th now. Okay, Ryan. This well-known member of the Disney family was born on January 10th, 1930. Well, I know it's um, okay. Give me a multiple choice. Okay, Sharon Lund Disney, Roy Edward Disney, Ron Miller, Diane Disney Miller. Diane. Well, I have to do the math in my head here really quick. 
January 10th, 1930. I'm going to say Diane. Okay, is that your final answer? D, Diane Oh, Disney God, you're Miller? laughing at me. It's not right. I wouldn't guess that, but I might be wrong. Now you're in my head. Oh, my gosh. I'm just going to say final answer because it, it would be a guess either way. Okay. The answer... I think the math is correct, though, because Diane is not alive anymore, correct? Correct. Can I guess? But how old was she when she passed? She was pretty old. Didn't she live to be... You know, old is relative. Okay, not as old as I'm thinking. No, because the number I had was going to be old, old, so never mind. (laughs) I would say Roy E. And you would have been correct. The answer is Roy Edward Disney. He was born, of course, to Roy Oliver and Edna Disney in Los Angeles, California. And he worked for his Uncle Walt after graduating college in 1951 as an assistant editor. And, of course, he was elected to the board of directors of the company in 1967. He was a strong supporter of Disney animation. He's best known, though, for organizing the ousting of two top Disney executives. His time first, Ron Miller in 1984, and then Michael Eisner in 2005. Remember that. Yeah, and he was the last member of the Disney family to be actively involved in the company. All right. So we still have three to zero. Back to Craig. Craig, on January 11th, this infamous opening day attraction at Disney's California Adventure took guests on their last ride on January 11th, 2002. Oh, see, I know this one. (laughs) Is that Um, the way it works? I will just take a guess on it without the multiple choice and say Superstar Limo. You, it was, yeah. like you were going to say, yeah. yeah, and I only knew. I, I don't remember if it was it was either one of the two of you were the, who the, who were the ones who told me to go watch the video on YouTube about <laughs> this incredibly unique uh, attraction. <laughs> and you are correct. It was Superstar Limo. The management closed this ride after less than one year. Um, reportedly, the typical guest reaction to the ride was so negative that the park was actually stronger when um, the only dark ride in the park was closed. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. But yeah, if anyone wants to see how crazy this ride is, go to YouTube and you can type that in and watch the treat of what – I don't know what they were thinking. And and knowing that those characters are under those yellow suits in in the Monster Sink attraction. Cher is in there somewhere trying to catch a baby. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But isn't that her life story? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, January 12th, this well-known Disney executive, this is for Ryan, was born on January 12th, 1957. Uh, Michael Eisner? Is that your final answer? No, but I... Uh, no, I feel like that would make him way too young, actually. January 12th, 1957. 1957. Give me the multiple choice, Michael. Is it A, Bob Iger, B, John Lasseter, C, George Caligridis, or D, Bob Weiss? Oh, God, I'm glad I didn't go with my answer. Um... Give them to me one more time. I'm sorry. That's okay. A, Bob Iger. Mm-hmm. B, John Lasseter. C, George Caligridis. And D, Bob Weiss. And this is January 12th, 1957. Gosh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to say uh, uh, 
Lasseter. You are correct. Yes. The answer, he was the youngest one out of this whole list here. That's B, John Lasseter. Of course, he's the award-winning director, writer, producer, and chief creative officer at Pixar and Walt Disney um, and Walt Disney Animation Studios. He was born in Hollywood, California. Did you know he was originally a Jungle Cruise skipper? I did know Disneyland. this because I think his son became a Jungle Cruise skipper as well, right? Yeah. He did, yeah. Um, how old is Bob Iger? Bob Iger was born in 1951. Oh. Hmm. I, he, I actually thought he was younger than that. Yeah. Good for you, Bob. Yeah, because he's talking about retiring, but of course, yeah, it didn't, he's not serious about yeah. it at all. Okay, so now the score is six, Craig, and two, Ryan. So coming you're back. in the I'm game. Coming back. You're yeah. in the game, Ryan. I got points on the okay. board. Craig, January 13th. A 3D version of this popular Disney film is released to the theaters for a limited run on January 13th, 2012. I'm going to say that was Beauty and the Beast. And you are correct. Mm. You know your films. The answer was Beauty and the Beast. And that ends our our This Week in Disney History quiz um, for this time. And the score, the final score is is Ryan coming in second with two <laughs> points and Craig coming in first with nine points. We'll come back so for my revenge someday. <laughs> That's right. How about next week? How about next week? <laughs> All yes. right, if you insist. All righty. Okay, well, thank you. And um, join us next time when Craig and I take you on a history tour of the great, big, beautiful Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners see and hear you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? Of course, you can find me on all my normal shows that I'm on throughout the week. And you can always follow me uh, on Twitter at Teleclaster, and I will interact with you, and you can read my bad jokes that I make every now and then. <laughs> what about you, Michael? Well, as as part of our announcement of, of connecting with Walt going weekly, yeah. the other half of that announcement is is that I will be um, leaving our Disneyland show after, yes. I think, about five years yeah. of being on that show. But you can listen to my history segments um, in for that show in, of course, that Disneyland podcast archives. But I know that um, Craig and I have been talking about over the course of time, those segments will be brought over to Connecting with Walt, mm-hmm. and you know we'll we'll use them. Um, you know, it's time to time to enhance our our new um, episodes that we exactly. bring you. And but you can always get in touch with me for um, you know, but you can send me messages at Michael at wdwinfo.com on Twitter. You can contact me at mbowling121. Um, I'm on Facebook at Michael Bowling, Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And then, as Craig mentioned, um, Connecting with Walt will soon um, have its appearance on social media. And we, yes. will, we will let you know about that. that that's how you can um, be in touch with both me and Craig about the, this show. Exactly. Too. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That it was all started by a man. Walt Disney and his brother Roy. Bye.